You're welcome, Neil. This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Monday through Wednesday. And podcast shortly after at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Also Chicago time on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This is Hell also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Twice every week on the Chicago South Sides Lumpen Radio. And thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. Why is it that so many political campaign promises that are made for real reforms that the public demands, why do they so often go unfulfilled? During election season, entire political debates surround issues that are focused on what voters desperately want, whether that's build back better or immigration reform. But that never seems to be the conclusion of any of those political administrations. Sure, the debates continue and attempts are made at doing what often the majority of people want, but nothing ever seems to get done, smashing into a dead end of politicians positioning themselves in what often seems a performance, a charade, pretending to be addressing legitimate concerns, and then nothing. And shortly after, we enter another political campaign season that, after a while, seems fruitless, and in the end, pointless, other than as a tool for politicians to get elected and nothing much more. This inability can lead to frustration by voters, even voter apathy, because why vote? Why be engaged in politics? Why trust the U.S. brand of democracy after the public has spoken and the political leadership seems to not listen? Why do these campaign promises get unfulfilled time and time and time again? We will try to figure that out in a few when we speak with public sector immigration lawyer and social critic Daniel Mello, whose recent writing at Black Agenda Report includes... The capitalist imperative driving cruel and bipartisan U.S., as well as Democrats and trading people for political power migration policies. Daniel is the author of Borderlines, The Edges of U.S. Capitalism, Immigration and Democracy, which was published by Zero Books back in August of 2021. Follow Daniel on Twitter at Dan J. Mello, that's M-E-L-O. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey with a cameo by Alexander Jerry. Lindsay, how was your weekend? It was pretty good, although it started off kind of rough when I had to get a city sticker um, on Friday. I hate. Get, did you have to go to DMV? I had to go to the city clerk, which was my first time there. And it was emotional. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> Boring? <laughs> I, well, I'm from a place where they don't make you, you know, pay to park your car on the street <laughs> where it's going to be covered in snow and ice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you mean the rest of the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was really cold and I had to wait outside for 20 minutes before I gave them my money. Wow. Did you have to make an appointment with the clerk's office? 
No, I don't think you can make an appointment. I don't know. I don't know. I just went and there was a long line. I have to get a new uh, state ID and they told me that I need to make an appointment for it because my state ID expired in 2015. (laughs) I should probably work on doing something about that. Yeah. My weekend was another weekend sacrificed on the altar of Western medicine. In my case, a regimen of antibiotics that have knocked me on my ass for uh, over a week now. In fact, this past weekend, I was given yet another antibiotic to deal with my chronic intestinal inflammation. And my apologies to anyone who's trying to digest their breakfast but lucky you you get to eat breakfast i'm still in such fear of eating especially prior to the show that food has very much become an option in my life and my options are hunger or pain and given the two i'm definitely choosing hunger and if you're tired of hearing me complain about my myriad of physical problems imagine how tired i am of suffering from them and get this a side effect of the new medication i've been prescribed is nightmares jesus who knew that i've never heard that at least i don't recall seeing any ad on TV for a drug where they say, and another side effect could be nightmares. But apparently, that's the side effect of one of the medications I'm on. But more important than whatever the hell is wrong with me lately, and my by my count, my ailments are entering their 11th straight month now. Lindsay, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what conflict are you avoiding? What conflict are you avoiding? I'm avoiding all conflicts. Hey, conflict sucks. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, the trucker's cap, the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your ongoing support. Thanks to Hank H. of Eugene, Oregon, for showing your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Hank picked up a This Is Hell trucking cap as well as one of our enamel camping mugs. Also, thanks to Camille G. of Binghamton, New York, who also chose a This Is Hell enamel camping mug. Thanks, Hank and Camille. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as we do most weeks. Uh, Lindsay will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Daniel on why no reforms ever seem to get done ever again this week's question from hell is what conflict are you avoiding what conflict are you avoiding brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and Lindsay has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is a placebo. Oh, this will work great. Inverse.com posted the article, There's No Real Hangover Cure, but they, but these five science-backed trips can't help. 
The inverse story cites a new study from the Society to Study Addiction titled The Efficacy and Tolerability of Pharmacologically Active Interventions for Alcohol-Induced Hangover Symptomology, a systematic review of the evidence from randomized placebo-controlled trials. Doesn't that sound like a fun study to read, Lindsay? That sounds <laughs> absolutely great. They, they, got, they caught me at the efficacy and tolerability of pharmacologically active interventions. <laughs> Yes, it's it's uh, riveting. Yeah. <laughs> Inverse reports, although many of us will turn to common medicine like paracetamol or aspirin, there have been no randomized controlled trials to test these against a placebo. But the research review team also found that the majority of trials of these had fewer than 30 participants. Despite this, England's National Health Service suggests that painkillers can help with the headaches caused by hangovers. Inverse explains, there's a clear need to improve both the quality and quantity of research into cures for hangovers. With an estimated 2.4 billion people drinking alcohol worldwide, many of whom will experience a hangover at some point, there's significant demand for an effective way of mitigating the unwanted symptoms it induces. This lack of evidence hasn't stopped a flourishing trade and promotion of unproven remedies being marketed. Many of these will rely on the placebo effect, which is known to be significant across a range of health problems. Believing a potion will work, even though it has no active ingredient, can be enough to reduce the impact of a hangover. That makes this week's hangover cure a placebo. That's what I should have been prescribed for all of my stomach ailments. I think that it probably would have actually worked better and I wouldn't be having nightmares and be sleeping 11 or 12 hours every day. Despite having added new board operators, Sebastian, Dan, and Lindsay, we are still looking for new board ops to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you would like to run the board as Alex and Richard have done so well over the years, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. That's chuck at thisishell.com. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. So we're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and our Patreon podcast on Thursday at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to also have access to a professional studio for your own projects. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you do need to live in the Chicago area. However, we do have other work that can be done remotely, no matter where you live in the world. So if you are interested in being a board operator or working with us remotely, email me at chuckatthisishell.com and we'll get you started on your new and exciting life as part of the This Is Hell crew. You can not only email us at this is, uh, chuck at thisishell.com about joining our staff, but you can also send us your guest or topic suggestions, comments on the show, constructive or destructive criticism, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. We got an email from longtime listener Rob H., who sent me an office chair at the very beginning of the pandemic shortly after I threw my back out. So thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. And see, I told you my body sucks. Rob writes... I think I finally have the time to help remotely with helping with transcripts of interviews or anything else looking forward to contributing. By the way, Chuck, I never have won the question from hell, as you suggested I have on the show, even though I've submitted answers that at least made myself 
laugh or enjoy but i definitely did not send you a but i definitely did not send you uh, but i definitely did send you a bribe i mean um office chair previously i hope it has been more comfortable than your previous chair and helps your back at least a little bit wait that chair was a bribe to win the question from hell am i just that clueless why did i not recognize that chair as a bribe in the past and i could have swore you won the question from hell so i promise rich you will win the question from hell soon what the bribe and all and hank thanks for the heads up about the bribe and the reminder as well we'll have more of your emails following our conversation with daniel mello coming up why political campaign promises so often go unfulfilled we'll also have this week in rotten history some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what conflict are you avoiding tell you who is going to be uh, also on this week's show and uh, yeah we got some more email to share with you as well live from the united states where capitalism is the virus this is hell prepare yourself for this year's upcoming midterm election campaign season because you can expect a flurry of promises for reforms or reforms that may sound familiar to what was promised the last election season because it seems none of those promises ever actually get done. Here to help us understand why seemingly not, nothing the people actually demand ever happens, public sector immigration lawyer and social critic Daniel Mello wrote the Black Agenda Report articles, The Capitalist Imperative Driving Cruel and Bipartisan U.S. Immigration Policies, as well as Democrats and Trading People for Political Power Migration Policies. Welcome to This Is Hell, Daniel. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Daniel is the author of Borderlines, The Edges of Capitalism, Immigration and Democracy, which was published by Zero Books back in August of last year. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Dan J. Mello. That's M-E-L-O. You start by writing President Biden recently reached an agreement with Mexico to reinstate the Migrant Protection Protocols, which is a title it sounds like it's okay a program instituted by the trump administration which now sounds like a program that does not sound okay it requires tens of thousands of migrants to pursue their requests for asylum outside of the united states living in horrifying conditions on the mexican side of the border until it is their turn to attend a hearing so uh, daniel how much has u.s immigration policy relative to mexico and the situation at the u.s mexico border changed from the Trump administration to the Biden administration 13 months into Biden's presidency, or even from Obama to Trump to Biden? Yeah, um, very little, um, at least in the grand scheme of things. And unfortunately, um, even the things that have changed have largely done little to improve the conditions of most migrants um, here and abroad. The little things that I, you know, that that practitioners would, I guess, give Biden a thumbs up for is getting rid of, you know, the public charge era rules, um, you know, reinstituting some of the claims that are available for asylees to to pursue for protection. But the big, big ticket items, massive immigration reform that's now well over 20 years overdue, um, the migrant protection protocols and the use of Title 42 to expel migrants from the border um, are all just big black eyes um, as far as most of us are concerned. So considering how central immigration policy was to the debate, political debate going into the political uh, campaign season in 2020, and uh, I mean, how much 
did you expect would change? Uh, from <laughs> cynically, very little personally. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, Trump um, really helped the Democrats sort of obscure their own kind of reactionary tendencies towards immigration because he was such a big bad guy, right? By Biden coming in and basically just re restoring the awful status quo under Obama, you know, we just had all kinds of people clapping each other on the back and celebrating that like, oh, thank goodness, you know, now finally we're here at this point where things are, things are going to be good again, right? And good in what sense? Like the, the millions of people that were deported under Obama, the, the massive swaths of, of individuals denied relief and um, turned back over into terrible situations in their home countries, you know, the millions upon millions of undocumented that remain undocumented, you know, all these things that, that were awful under Obama just seem less awful now because we endured the Trump years. Um, so in that way, Biden got a huge boost from Trump. The Democrats got a huge boost from Trump because it looked like they were doing everybody a favor by just, you know, putting things back to the, the terrible status quo that was before. You write that while Biden initially moved to end the program known as Migrant Protection Protocols, uh, a Texas judge ordered the administration to continue MPP until it went through the proper administrative process to end it. So can the implementation of MPP be blamed on Biden or is it the responsibility of the courts? Can he simply wash his hands and say, there's just nothing I can do? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, to give some iota of credit, the, the, the administration has decided they're going to you know, run it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, cynically, I think that's not actually because they you know, want so badly to end the program, but, but really because challenges like this to um, executive authority can't go unanswered in that respect. Um, but, you know, as far as the program's concerned, it's like uh, even assuming, right, that, that their hands are tied to a degree um, by MPP, there has not been any kind of moves. Um, there's still a great deal of leeway and power in terms of how it's implemented and getting people through the program as fast as possible. And so even if you, you know, want to assume that that some modicum of the program had to remain in place, um, they could have easily still done things like paroled people um, in very large groups, you know, sent a lot more resources and time to just get people through there as long as as quickly as possible so that there weren't tens of thousands of folks, you know, um, hanging out essentially on on the, the Mexico side of the border in these awful, you know, tent cities and where, you know, there's just rampant crime, all kinds of abuses, uh, just really awful situation happening that's growing daily. Um, so in that respect, again, I, I cynically think that, that the administration um, has done very little and so much so, in fact, that there, um, late last year, a large number of uh, organizations and and attorneys who had been working at the border with this population walked out of a meeting with the Department of Homeland Security saying they were just no longer, even if it meant that they would basically not be able to represent folks anymore, they were no longer going to be participants in this god-awful scheme. How effective do you think that is? Um, in terms of, you know, getting the administration to do anything about it, probably not, but I, I certainly support, you know, their their idea that it's like we're not going to help you continue to implement this this terrible program.
And as you point out, the administration, having received the appropriate legal coverage from the courts, not only re-implemented the program with minimal changes to the horror of not just advocates, but even asylum officers at the border, which is fascinating, but broadened its scale. Any migrant from a Western Hemisphere nation can be sent back under the program. A program that was criticized by Biden supporters is now being expanded, it would seem like. So why would Biden expand a program that was so unpopular with his supporters when it was implemented by Trump? Exactly. It's it's fascinating to me to see that, you know, that uh, when I wrote the article that, you know, Biden and the administration had reached an agreement with Mexico to actually expand the program um, and house even more people um, there. And so at this point, you know, whether you're looking at those those images of Border Patrol agents whipping Haitian migrants from horseback um, or again, just these these growing tent cities um, just on the other side of the Mexican border, it would seem to me that um, given the massive amount of resources that the nation has, that we could alleviate these concerns in a humane way while still, um, you know, tentatively holding to the requirement, the quote unquote legal requirements. Um, and so again, if if the administration had wanted to fundamentally take a humane step towards ending the program, there's plenty of other things other than expanding it that it could have done by now. But as you point out in your writing, this is not about humanitarianism, and we'll get to that in a moment. You mentioned that migration controls have always had to adjust to capitalism's contradictions and demands, which explains why these exploitative migration policies are bipartisan. So uh, how dependent is the U.S. economic system on exploiting migrant labor? Um, and it's a subject I, I cover much more extensively in the book, but it it is always, migration has always been tied to the, the political economic question here in the U.S., right? And so from the earliest moments of, of the U.S. emerging as a nation on the world stage, you know, there has been this question of controlling who comes in and out of the country that has almost always been centered around labor. And that's not to say that, of course, at times there haven't been, you know, issues of, of race and xenophobia and all of that sort of stuff. And you can see intersections of that, say, um, in the Bracero program in the, in the 40s, 50s, when um, there was a, you know, a national labor shortage here during World War II. We needed bodies to keep factories running. I mean, it was just that simple. We needed people to continue growing our food while we shipped um, people overseas to fight. So Mexican labor largely stepped in to fill that gap. But the day, right, that that, that labor was no longer necessary, um, you had Operation Wetback come back in and start, um, and, and that's a literal, literally what it was named, um, to start removing Mexicans en masse from the country. Um, so it, there's never been this, you know, it's never been steps in, in our migration policy towards necessarily establishing some kind of humane um, approach to migration, but rather has always centered around this question of political economy. Again, you were mentioning the Bracero program. That's the nineteen. The program started in 1942 to address labor shortages, which allowed millions of Mexican men to work legally in the United States on short-term labor contracts. Would such a program, especially during a pandemic, when we have seen labor shortages, have been? Uh, I know that that's a, uh, not necessarily the case, but would such a program, especially during a pandemic, have been politically impossible in the United States? Whether that was in 2021 or this year, 2022. 
I, I, I do think so, um, largely because, again, there's no, there's no real need for it in terms of the status, uh, keeping the status quo intact, right? So part of what makes um, migrant labor so appealing, whether you're talking about undocumented labor or even, um, you know, say in the STEM fields, the, the H2B program, um, is that it's easily exploited and remains under the control of the state, right? And so, you know, to use the undocumented example, you can pay migrant workers pennies on the dollar, right? Because what recourse do they have? They don't have status. There's no way for them to readily organize themselves. Um, and in fact, you know, historically, uh, CBP, had the Customs and Border and its, its, its predecessors have even worked alongside of agriculture. Um, they would deliver folks um, that they had apprehended to um, fields to work and then round them up and take them and deport them, um, having not paid them a dollar, you know, for their, their labor. And so it's because migrants are always in this precarious kind of legal status, right, that it, it ensures that you're able to exploit them. And so in that sense, there's no need ever to institute like broad legalization programs in our modern era, just because um, we don't, it's like there's already plenty of migrants um, here that are able to be exploited. And so long as that remains true, right, um, that's that's going to remain so. And if you want to jump over, say, and, and, you know, I've heard folks talk about the example of like Reagan's amnesty in 1986, um, that it's like, oh, but look, there's this example where despite there being labor shortages um, during that era, and again, in quotations, it was sort of like, well, he gave 3 million migrant status. But if you actually look at Reagan's incentive around the law um, and why he actually agreed to push it and sign it was not because he felt sorry for this group of, of individuals or that he was worried about their, their exploitation, but rather it was this question of control, right? And this is a direct quote from Reagan that said he wanted to, quote, humanely regain control of our borders. And part of what the, the act did in 86 was to try to penalize employers rather than target migrants um, to regain that control, right? So essentially to try to, to close off some of the flow into the nation. Um, but of course, that was going to run afoul of just the general capitalist tendency, right, to be able to do what it wanted to do to maintain profit. Um, and so it never got any teeth. You did end up, of course, seeing um, these folks gain, a lot of folks gain legal status, but it didn't eliminate the job opportunities um, to start bringing people over. If U.S. immigration policy reveals the dependence of the United States economic system on exploiting migrants and migrant labor, to you, why is that exploitation not central to the debate over U.S. immigration policy? What is the impact on the political debate over immigration when there is no focus or even mention of that exploitation? It's, you know, it's tough to say what the particular parties are, are thinking at any um, one point. And, and I should say that it's like there's not some grand conspiracy, right, by capitalists or even by, you know, the, the political ruling class to keep migrants under thumb. It's just that to do anything else at this point would be such a massive disruption to the political status quo um, that it's just not something that they can deliver on, right? Um, and so to that extent, there have historically been trends where you see at times, um, say, agriculturalists uh, jumping on board with fighting um, 
you know, certain repressive or, or uh, aggressive enforcement schemes. Um, but that wasn't, again, because they were terribly interested in what happened to the migrants. They just wanted access to that labor pool, right? And so um, I, I believe one author put it as, as like they wanted workers, not fellow citizens. Um, and so to that extent, uh, because migrants, again, can't, can't aren't voting members, you know, that that limited way of even trying to participate in 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 political life here. Um, they're not being heard at that level. And then there's no incentive at this point to make any kind of radical changes. Right now, you would get massive political blowback from the right. Um, and of course, here on the left, the, the Democrats have just been so inadequate at moving anything forward that there's just no reason right now to try to pursue um, votes from from you know the the collective sort of migrant interests and and population you write that migration flows and their governance exist in a broader cycle of displacement and reabsorption migrant protection protocols together with the use of title 42 a little known health law that allows for ex expedited expulsions of people trying to enter the united states on public health grounds is but the latest and greatest uh, form of this, a means of tightly regulating migrant flows into the U.S. as even failures of capitalism increase the waves of human bodies cast upon its shores. So as capitalism reveals its shortcomings outside the United States, the U.S. limits the number of migrants entering the U.S. Has this increased with U.S. support of neoliberalism both in the United States and abroad, especially in Central American nations? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, there's a, a very long and, and sorted history going back well over 100 years at this point of U.S. involvement um, in Central America, in particular Central and South America. Um, but to be very brief about it, you know, the, the U.S.'s insistence on um, opening up this half of the world to neoliberalism has consistently decimated um, the local economies, the local political structure, um, and you know, the price of that ultimately is displaced people, right? And so, uh, there have just been increasing wave upon wave of displaced displaced people as neoliberalism sort of failed attempts at at um, you know doing what it does best, which is is getting money for a few and leaving the rest out to dry. And so, whether we're talking about um, you know NAFTA or further back, um, any other kind of reforms, you know, to, to de-socialize de things um, in Central American countries. In the end, right, the immiseration that results from, from, from all of those things is going to displace people, the uptick in crime, even the gang problem is actually a problem of, of US-created political economy, right? We, we fund these wars in, say, El Salvador, um, thousands upon thousands of young men are displaced from that country, come to the U.S., find a home in, you know, in poor areas around the country, start um, becoming involved in gang life, create these large gangs. And then what do we do? We round them up and then send them back to their home countries to um, proliferate there, right? So even the gang problem is actually a product of the broader spectrum of, of U.S. Um, foreign policy choices in Central America over the last 60 years. So that would suggest the problem is neoliberalism, or neoliberalism at least exacerbates the problem. If that is the case, 
when it comes to migration policy specifically to you what explains the lack of debate over neoliberalism and is it, is it all just the media's fault why do we not uh, include neoliberalism within the debate over migrant policy uh, that is the question i think um you know, for start, of course, I think there's a whole ideological structure that has really um, arisen to help defend neoliber- neoliberalism against its greatest, greatest tractors. But I also suspect that it's just, you know, in some ways, our own short memories about what's taken place, right? You can have um, Kamala Harris at the beginning of the Biden presidency, you know, take a trip to Central America and look those people dead in the face and say, do not come here, right? Do not come to the US, you will be turned back. You guys need to sort out your problems here, fix what's wrong here. And she can be entirely sincere about that, right? Believing that it is their problem, um, forgetting again that, that a huge portion of their problem has come from US involvement in the past. Um, And so I think whether we're talking about, you know, the political elite all the way down to the rest of us, right, it's it's so easy just because the pile keeps growing higher and higher and higher of problems that that emerge from neoliberal policies, from capitalism, that it's easy to just forget that, like, this didn't just come out of a vacuum, right, Um, that it has a history that's tied to it. And yet, because we're always under the next crisis, it's so easy to just try to make a quick explanation or push off the problem onto um, somebody else. And in this case, you know, neoliberalism is just very, very good, right, at making um, making problems personal in that sense of like you're in it because it's your fault, right? This is this is happening to you because you did something wrong. Um, and again, whether we're talking about nation states or, you know, poor, poor individuals, it's just um, such a strong ideological structure that that preserves this notion that uh, whatever you were born into is your problem. So are politics or the needs of capital the biggest obstacle to lifting limits on migrant labor? labor? Are politics more powerful than d- the demands of the economic system here in the United States when it comes to migrant policy? Um, I see I see both sort of as playing off of the other. Um, in our immediate moment, you know, political power is, I think, more tantamount to the the immediate issues in that while, you know, there are the potential, at least economically, to to take on many, many more migrants, right? This question of controlling the border uh, has to come foremost because what what is a state to do if it doesn't have control over who can come in and come out? Um, and so I think that in that sense, politics probably has a stronger role to play at the moment, um, only because this question of control, this question of power is, is central, um, given the, the growing crisis um, that, of displaced people that keeps showing up at our doorstep. That being said, though, that I, I, you know, I'm also a firm believer that, that the economic piece is what underlies so much of politics. So in that respect, who are the politicians answerable to? And it's, you know, in my other piece, it's like I point out, it's like, it's certainly not to the people, right? Because we haven't had any kind of, you know, serious economic reform that has bolstered the material conditions of individuals for many years now. And it, by all accounts, it looks like Build Back Better is just straight up dead to use Manchin's language. Um, and so in that respect, there's no, there's no 
looking at the issue from just one side or just the other, um, it is something that sort of exists in a cycle. We are speaking with public sector immigration lawyer and social critic Daniel Mello, whose recent writing at Black Agenda Report includes the capitalist imperative driving cruel and bipartisan U.S. immigration policies, as well as Democrats and trading people for political power migration policies. He's the author of Borderlines, the Edges of U.S. Capitalism, Immigration and Democracy, which was published by Zero Books back in August of 2021. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Dan J. Mello. That's M-E-L-O. So we were touching on this earlier, but I want to make certain that we get back to this. What happens when U.S. border policy is understood not as one of humanitarianism, but one of control? How is the migrant issue viewed differently by all sides of the debate when we realize that this isn't about being humanitarian towards people who are trying to get into the United States, but control of borders? You know, it, it certainly instrumentalizes people in that sense. Like people are no longer um, ends in themselves, but are just means towards whether it's a particular political end um, or an economic end. Um, and you know, you, just the examples abound. You know, in the most recent um, crisis, actually far from our border with Afghanistan, right? Um, the if the government were truly interested in um, a humanitarian gesture towards the peoples of Afghanistan that we've, you know, um, just caused so much, so much headache in their lives, right? Um, there are, I want to say it's it's over 40,000 at this point, it's probably an even bigger number than that of humanitarian parole applications that have been filed by individuals abroad to, to come to the U.S., because of particularized threats, you know, to them and their safety in Afghanistan. And um, so far, um, the vast, vast majority of those have been denied if they've been adjudicated at all. Now, if, if again, if, if the idea is that, right, we can, we can do things in a humane way, then that, you know, asylum grants, um, the elimination of the use of Title 42 to expel migrants, all of those things um, would be bent towards that lens, right? Of what are we doing for people as people? Um, but that's just not the case. And um, it's hard to point to a single example now or historically um, where that has been the case, right? The superseding interests of economy, of political policy um, is always going to instrumentalize, instrumentalize uh, migrants in that way. And, you know, to a great extent, right, those things that we see done of, of migrants inevitably are going to find their way um, to the working class, the, the native or in quotations, the, the local citizenry as well. Our neighborhood, West Ridge, where we are uh, broadcasting from right now, is a neighborhood that has invited many people from all over the world as refugees into the area. We have uh, Rohingya, we have Uyghur, and now we have more and more Afghan refugees. And if anybody who is listening in the Chicago area want to support uh, refugee groups here in the West Ridge neighborhood, they can. I will contact you and tell you exactly how you can do that. But, but why have any political promises related to to migrant policy ever been made if they seem so, you know, running up to a dead end? I mean, why is bi why is mi migrant uh, policy an issue during political campaigns if it's both bipartisan and seemingly unchangeable? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that while ultimately um, 
you know, the pol political elite are always going to be far more responsive to the demands of, of, of power and um, responding to the needs of, of, you know, the neoliberal capitalist order. That being said, it's not to say that, that the populace still is not going to make demands. And at, at least for the moment, right, like there's still requirement to get a certain amount of votes, you know, every year to remain in power. Um, and so people play at least some small role in in these transfers of power back and forth between the parties. And so in that sense, they're, they at least have to appear to be responsive to some of those demands, which have been growing, as, especially in the migration space, have been growing louder and louder as we have yet to see, again, any kind of meaningful reform of the system for over 30, 20 years now. You also point out that the political jollies Trump gained by instituting such draconian measures have given the right a whole new lease on life and a means to not only scapegoat migrants, but ultimately challenge any possible progression away from that Trump agenda. Can only the Republicans take advantage of the immigration debate? Can only more and more draconian policies be implemented and therefore only the Republicans can win the migration debate? Um, I, I think that they are certainly at an advantage in that being more draconian is certainly easier than finding, um, you know, tentative solutions going the other direction. Um, that being said, though, um, as Reagan did in his, his era, right, Democrats could certainly look for um, political means of, of selling immigration reform to the populace, to capitalists, right? It's it's really a question of who it benefits. Um, and in the end, right now, they've just not been able to sort that out at all. Um, and so whether that's trying to sneak reform in through you know, the parliamentarian process, um, however ill-advised that may have been, um, or trying to do it writ large on the open scale, right? It's, it's that as long as there's no particular um, political leverage about that from, again, from the population, there's no need for them, you know, other than to maybe give up, you know, a, a college try, a good old college try to it. There's just really no need to go about reforming those things. Migrants don't cast votes. Migrants aren't available to cast votes. And so unless there's some kind of very strong political pressure, um, there's not much need for them to do that. And so that creativity is not going to come around so long as the problem isn't big enough that they can't ignore it. You write that the tens of thousands of people subject to migration protection protocols are reduced to playthings again in the capitalist system, bandied about to be pitied when politically expedient, enemies of national security and well-being otherwise. Can Democrats only pity migrants' treatment when Republicans are in power and nothing more? I, I would love to see something else from them, but that, that seems to be the fairly consistent narrative is that um, when it counts in public spaces, they are taking this very moralizing kind of pitiful view of migrants and their situation and how they're being treated by the state. But then when they actually have their own turn at, at the helm, um, don't do very little to nothing to actually fundamentally change the material conditions for migrants. And again, whether we're talking about Obama deporting more, more than any of his predecessors or Biden's you know, continued use of inhumane policies, um, so long as, as there's not an actual material incentive to, to change it, it's just politically, it's much more politically expedient um, to 
pity them when it's convenient and then continue to abuse them when when focus has turned elsewhere. So as it stands today, is immigration policy doomed to become uh, more and more oppressive? I, you know, I, I don't see a way out right now. All of the circles that I participate in, um, all of the, you know, the other attorneys and activists that I talk to, I, to be frank, just don't have a lot of hope right now in terms of any kind of large scale political change um, happening. And I'm not sure at this point what would um, move the ball forward, given that we've been in this sort of deadlock in, in terms of making any kind of progress towards change. Um, so cynically, I, I think that we are stuck in this for a while until there is some kind of greater motivating interest, whether that comes from, you know, the capitalist wing of, of the country or um, just that, that things become so dire that there's no, uh, nothing else to do but to reform the system. You also wrote an article that was posted in late January that I was mentioning earlier, headlined Democrats and trading people for political power. In that article, you write Democrats have so far failed to move forward, even the most watered down legislative agenda after a year in power. And while this has been largely chalked up to either hold out moderates or bad actors like the Senate parliamentarian Joe Manchin, it was ultimately masked. It has ultimately masked the vacuous nature of American politics one that consistently trades the preservation of power to the exclusion of even the mildest of reforms. How do even the mildest of reforms threaten the preservation of power? You know, in some fundamental senses, they don't. It's not like, you know, any of these reforms were were ostensibly going to hand over the means of, of production. And yet, um, you know, reforms have often been used to um, mollify class conflict, right? And so um, using some kind of reform to alleviate, you know, some base level of immiseration for the working class in this country is a great step in, in some senses of, of ensuring that, that those people don't take matters into their own hands. So in that sense, um, even mild reforms can at least put off some of the crisis of neoliberalism for a little while longer. You also write that the list of failures, intentional and otherwise, is long. Migrant protection protocols, student loans, and critically the slow death of Build Back Better Act, to name a few. While these have an erupting mountain of excuses piled next to them, the rather important but unstated one is that major reforms will almost always cede their priority to political jockeying for power. This is clearest in the Democrats' recent shelving of Build Back Better Act before Senator Joe Manchin decided he wouldn't vote for it anyway, in favor of electoral reform, the fear that they will lose seats to increasingly gerrymandered states largely controlled by Republicans. So is partisan political power far more of a priority for both parties than anything like repairing the country's infrastructure? And if so, what does that say to you about the current state of U.S. democracy? (laughs) Um, I'll let others decide what it says, but, um, you know, it, it, should at least be apparent at this point that, you know, ideally to continue getting support of the people through votes, you would be doing something for those people, right? In some some meaningful sense, like say the Build Back Better Act, where, you know, we're talking about childcare, we're talking about family leave, you know, migration reform, all of these things, right? Um, and yet the Democrats, you know, turn around and put that aside um, in favor of voting reform say, well, no, 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 no. We, we need to make sure that we can stay 
in these positions so that we can continue to deliver, or I guess in this case, not deliver, uh, you know, these, these reforms for you. Um, and so in that way, cynically, it's, it's kind of absurd to ask people to continue to help you maintain your position of power if that power is never deployed for the benefit of the people that it's supposed to be serving, right? Um, so it it's ludicrous in that way that the Democrats, with a straight face, can ditch, you know, what is a watered down, but at least was, you know, some kind of reform to the material conditions for so many people across this country um, that to me would signal at least that that they would continue to get support um, from those people in favor of saying, well, you just need to help us, you know, stay in this spot a little bit longer and then we can help you guys. So do you think the Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot? Um, I, you know, even assuming, right, that there were noble intentions behind, and I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, issues around voting, around voter IDs, around race, all of those things are very, very real. Um, but yes, I, you know, ultimately, I think it's just purely in terms of political strategy, right, that the fact that they're just now starting to freak out about gerrymandered states and the lack of, of voting protections, um, is is not sound it, it it would seem to me that like especially when you look at our current cadre in the supreme court um even assuming that they could get something passed i'm not sure that it would uphold um you know stay stay law for very long um with our current supreme court and so rather than you know i think the much more sound political move would have been to try to get some fundamental piece of of uh benefit to the people that they're supposed to be serving. And and maybe that then, you know, would actually translate to more votes in the future. Um, but instead they're aiming at, uh, at a target that um, I don't think they're going to hit. As you write, not that electoral reform is a sound strategy, uh, even if pursued for noble reasons. The current Supreme Court will likely be hostile to large-scale voting reforms. More significantly, there is no indication that such protections would have an immediate payoff in the upcoming midterms, especially if Democratic votes are too poor and uh, defeated to even get to the polls, voters that is. While this ill-advised move detracts from the soundness of the strategy, it does not remove the cynicism at the heart of the approach, Protecting power, taking precedence over all else, albeit however poorly chosen the approach is. So while these may not have a political payoff immediately, in the long run, wouldn't electoral reform eventually and inevitably benefit the Democratic Party? After all, we've been told for decades now that uh, by the Democrats and their supporters and, and their opponents that Democratic Party is an inevitability with an increasing amount of the U.S. voting public being immigrants, especially those from Central America. America. So isn't electoral reform a good long-term strategy for the Democratic Party if it is a even if it is a cynical attempt at power? Um, you know, it's it's not that that they don't stand anything to gain from and I, I think they in some ways they would of course stand to gain from from electoral reform from ensuring that they were going to get votes in the future, right? The Republicans have certainly done a good job, especially at, at the local level, um, increasingly gerrymandering and ensuring that that votes through other restrictive means come into them rather than into the Democrats. Um, but again, I, I fail to see how that, you know, uh, other than strictly for the purposes of preserving their own place 
um, at the table, it's hard to see how that would benefit the working class in any meaningful way if that power, once again, is never implemented to alleviate the growing level of miseration in this country. You write that the starkest failure in this trade-off between Build Back Better and voting reform is that the interests of the people have been sacrificed on the altar of the status quo. While the watered-down Build Back Better Act had little emancipatory about it, a number of its provisions would serve to uplift the material conditions of millions of Americans. So is the Democratic Party any more or less supportive of the status quo than Republicans, or do they equally benefit from preserving the status quo? Is that their real bipartisan agenda? I think in that sense, it's it's not to say that they, you know, again, there's some kind of internal conspiracy there. But yeah, they absolutely benefit um, in their own respective ways from making sure that the status quo stays intact. If reform is a threat to both parties' power because it reform threatens status quo, what would have to be done for any real reform that the majority of people are actually demanding today? And as polls have shown, over 70% of the people do want uh, repairs to the infrastructure. So what has to be done for any real reform? Or is the status quo just too powerful? Um, it, you know, it, it certainly seems like right now that, that at least the traditional mechanisms of, of voting um, or even of, you know, um, sending letters, making phone calls, you know, the typical sort of electoral process in the states is just not working to get the message across. And I'm, you know, certainly not personally encouraging anything otherwise, but we need to radically rethink um, how, what kinds of demands we're going to be placing on our politicians and what kind of responses we're going to accept from them. Um, And in that respect, there's a great deal of thinking um, and action on the part of the working class that's going to have to come because it certainly is not going to come from the top down. You write that neither party requires the consent of the majority of the people to govern, only a majority of those that they can get to show up at the polls or in the Republican case, not show up. Selling voting reforms as protections to minorities is the worst kind of lip service to their immiseration, that the promises of relief can only come after the masses have once more helped uh, ensure that one party maintains a position of power over them. So why do you see that as the worst kind of lip service? Isn't representation important? Yeah, and and again, it really just lands on this point that it's like, as long as you're saying that you're you're doing something for me, we've long long held in this country that that's enough, right? That it, that as long as my voice is heard, that's enough. Well, uh, I would submit to the listeners that that is not enough, right? That that action actually has to follow. Um, that agreement to to represent someone. And so in that sense, if as an attorney, for example, if I say, yes, 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 I'm going to take your case and yes, 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 I'm going to help you address your issues. If I never actually put pen to paper, if I never actually show up to court, if I never actually do anything for that person, the fact that they're represented doesn't mean a damn thing. And you write the critical failure of the Democrats' most recent pivot guaranteeing electoral power is of little use to the working class if it is never deployed for their benefit. So what explains working class support for Republicans when the Republican Party does nothing to support the working class either? Or do they support the working class with rhetoric, which is more effective than promises of reform? Does the Republican Party win because they do not promise large-scale reforms for the working class? They win by promising the status quo. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think whole books have been written on that subject, and it's probably something that's still sort of unfolding. But it certainly seems like, you know, in some ways, the Republicans have tapped into a certain reactionary part of the country that, you know, while would benefit massively from, you know, adjustments in their material conditions, nevertheless see disruptions that are tied to those things, whether that's around migration or shifts in cultural values, stuff like that, right? That those aren't worth it. And so at least if they're able to keep on keeping on in their current status, that's that's enough, right? Um, and so in that sense, again, I think um, the reactionary part of the country is, is at an advantage when it comes to political representation because um, what they're asking for is no change, right? As long as they're able to keep keep going with what they're doing right now. And you write that we cannot and possibly should never expect remotely emancipatory potential to emerge from within the political confines of our present moment, even as we look to those in power to fulfill longstanding demands to shore up the worst damages done to the masses under global capitalism's weight. So not that the status quo would have ever allowed anyone like him to be elected. Uh, for those who are still upset over Bernie Sanders not having uh, been the Democratic Party nominee, to what degree would have someone like Bernie Sanders been able to even challenge the status quo? I, yeah, that is, that is again, one of those sort of like forever looming questions of, of what kind of power... Um, someone who had even a mildly radical vision of, of a different America would actually be able to institute it. Um, and in that sense, I don't have great answers except to say that I, I think at a minimum, right, there would have been positing at a, at a new level, a different vision, um, a step um, possibly in a new direction that would have been fundamentally different, even if none of those things ultimately would have landed. It would have at least potentially placed in people's minds this idea that there is something beyond this constant back and forth that we've been experiencing with no results. Daniel, I have one last question for you. We've been speaking with yeah. social critic and public sector immigration lawyer Daniel Mello, whose recent writing at Black Agenda Report includes the capitalist imperative driving cruel and bipartisan U.S. immigration policies, as well as Democrats and trading people for political power migration policies. He's the author of Borderlines, The Edges of U.S. Capitalism, Immigration, and Democracy, which was published by Zero Books back in August of last year. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Dan J. Mello. That's M-E-L-O. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that we should also note a moment of possible clarity in the threadbare system that we have. All that the political elite can offer in a moment of global despondency is a demand to help maintain itself, but no longer with even a reasonable assurance that the favor will be returned, that the parties are so easily able to bounce from one politically expedient moment to another, both within and without their turn at holding the keys, has made it clear to the masses that we are treading water with a political elite who are far more interested in remaining on top that in that on top than getting us all ashore safely, even if they drown everyone else in the process. And as they hold us below the surface, it might become axiomatic that the trade between people and power is one we're no longer interested in making. If that is the case, as it stands now, is the continuation of the American political project facing its inevitable end. 
I certainly think that there is an end um, whether or not capitalism is going to be be able to readjust itself once more um, and pacify that conflict that looms on the horizon um, remains to be seen. Um, but I certainly hope that all of us uh, wake up, even if our heads are underwater long enough to ask whether or not this should continue the way it's been going. Dan, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and you can bet on it that I will be annoying you in the future to have you back on the show. <laughs> this, is, so. this is really great writing, and I'm really upset that we didn't have you on the show uh, for your book that came out again back in August, Borderlines, The Edges of U.S. Capitalism, Immigration, and Democracy. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Of course, Chuck. Thank you all. Take care. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell if what you just heard from Dan on why none of the promises for reform made during election seasons ever get fulfilled was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you realize that yes this really is hell show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell. Subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, I revealed my love hate relationship with this is hell which turns out to be more like a love hate love relationship sure i love learning from all of our guests like dan mello but i hate what it reveals about me when i had not previously considered what they teach me on every episode of this is hell what i learn every time we do a show although i love the fact that i have actually learned something from our show and last week whether it was about black lives navigating white space what education means in prison or the marginalization of those struggling with mental health challenges i learned a lot that i probably should have already known considering the way i must navigate the world as someone who is disabled myself as a term i absolutely hate how i perceive the show as doing a public service is another aspect of what we learned last week and again how i am disabled and i should have had a better understanding of other disabilities again a term i loathe we also shared a 15 year old interview from february 24th 2007 that conversation was with carolyn pierce of the jubilee debt campaign which works jointly with oxfam uk and their vulture fund campaign back then we were just learning about vulture funds which buy up debts in distressed economies for a fraction of their worth only to later sue for the full value of the debt plus interest vulture funds target countries whose debts were absolved to help alleviate poverty in highly indebted poor countries after being recognized as such by the international monetary fund and world bank in zambia for example back in 2007 this had led to a case where a creditor was suing that nation for 40 million dollars in debt which the company had bought for only four million dollars so sure that imf and world bank absolved the debt but some horribly greedy bloodsuckers bought that debt and were forcing zambia to repay it tenfold so this week on patreon it was or this past week on patreon it was love hate love and vulture funds it's time well let's see what should i be doing here Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding so far this week's question from hell is what conflict are you avoiding uh joe k says all of them staying in my lane 
There you go. It's good. Uh, Greg G says the ones that matter. <laughs> yes, those are the most difficult ones to confront too. Badger Nefandus says Kiev versus Kiev. <laughs> um, it, it's a spelling thing going on here. A little hard to portray on the audio. No, but... you, you did it well. That was good. That was good. Uh, John. John C. says, I'm avoiding the Kanye and Kim divorce. Even though it's the only conflict that really matters. (laughs) Winky face. (laughs) Garrett S. Um, Let's go back. The question from hell is, what conflict are you avoiding? Garrett S. says, my wife. In quotations. (laughs) (laughs) Chris H. says, dialectical materialism (laughs) per Fukuyama. All right. All right, that's it. Uh, We'll have more of your responses to this week's Question Hell following our guest on tomorrow's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On February 27th, 1943, 79 years ago this week, a buildup of methane gas, which has been rebranded as natural gas by the fossil fuel industry, but, you know. Whatever. A buildup deep inside the Smith coal mine near Beer Creek, Montana. Beer Creek. Let's call that Bear Creek instead. Caused an underground explosion so powerful that it derailed a train locomotive a quarter of a mile away. A coal mine explosion derailed a train locomotive a quarter of a mile away. A total of 74 miners were killed. It took rescue workers five days of digging before they reached the first bodies. They found that some of the miners had survived underground long enough to write notes of farewell to their families, which I guess is better than immediately dying. You get to say goodbye to your families, I I guess. It was never determined exactly what had detonated the dangerous gas, but a post-mortem investigation noted that the miners were allowed to smoke underground and that they used matches to light dynamite charges. So my guess is the cause was mining and the lack of worker safety considered by greedy mine owners. But that's just my guess. In Rotten History, February 28th, 1525, 497 years ago today, Monday, Quotamak, the last of the Aztec emperors, were executed by soldiers under the command of the Spanish conquistador Herman Cortez, who had arrived at the Mexican capital, then known as Tenochtitlan, during the reign of a previous emperor, the second Moctezuma. And if you are not familiar with the anti-colonial, anti-imperialist song by Neil Young, Cortez the Killer, or even if you are, listen to it, because it really is one of his best songs ever. After Moctezuma died in captivity, he was succeeded by his brother, Quetelac, who died of smallpox after just 80 days as emperor. I wonder where he got that smallpox from. It was at that point that Moctezuma's young cousin, Quatemoc, had taken the throne. After leading the defense of Tenochtitlan for three months, Quatemoc was captured by Cortez and his men. By then, Cortez was itching to extend his conquest to Honduras because he was a genocidal dick. Cortez had uh, come to respect Guatemoc as a courageous and worthy adversary, but he didn't dare leave him behind in his capital where he could perhaps lead a revolt. So Cortez made Guatemoc pack up and accompany him on the road along with a small group of Aztec nobles. But on the way to Honduras, Cortez became convinced that Guatemoc and his associates were 
plotting to kill him. So, being as respectful as Cortez could be, he had Quatamac and his entourage all hanged. According to Bernal Diaz del Castillo, a soldier serving under Cortez, who later wrote a famous account of the conquest, Cortez quickly became so full of guilt that he couldn't sleep and suffered a serious injury while wandering through the dark in the middle of the night, which is not justice for a genocidal maniac, but it's as close as it gets for those total pricks who destroyed millennia-old civilizations. Finally, in Rotten History, on March 5th, 1963, 59 years ago this Saturday, three of the top singing stars of U.S. country music were returning to Nashville by air. After playing a show in Kansas City, Kansas, they were Patsy Cline, Cowboy Copas, and Hawkshaw Hawkins. Randy Hughes, the 34-year-old pilot of the single-engine Piper Comanche, was also Cline's manager and Copas's son-in-law. I think there's a kind of a conflict of interest there for Randy Hughes being the manager and the pilot and thus forcing them to continue on their way. When they stopped to refuel in Dyersburg, Tennessee, they encountered the kind of windy and foggy weather that normally requires flying with the aid of instruments, which is a different level of certification when flying. Hughes was an an inexperienced pilot, but qualified to fly only with a clear view of the ground. He did not have instruments-only training. But it was early evening. He was anxious to get back to Nashville because he was the band's manager, and he figured he could turn back if the clouds got too thick. So, against the advice of the Dyersburg airport manager, they took off again. Thirteen minutes later, a witness saw the plane go down in a swamp near Camden, Tennessee. Hughes, Patsy Cline, Cowboy Copas, and Hawkshaw Hawkins were all killed. Investigators would later uh, conclude that the plane had gone into a death spiral after Hughes lost his visual reference with the horizon and suffered spatial disorientation, a condition in which the inner ear's sense of balance fools a pilot into thinking they're flying level when they're actually tilted steeply to the left or right. This is why you need instruments-only training. When rescuers got to the wreck the next morning, they discovered it had already been found by unknown looters who took, among other things, the cash payment Patsy Cline had received for her last performance. Wow, now those are country music fans, and that's rotten history. And this is hell. Lindsay, do we know who is going to be on next week's This Is Hell? Or next week's, (laughs) upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Um, we know who's going to be on tomorrow. We have... Give me one second. All right. Um, tomorrow is going to be Mary Jane Gibson on her Rolling Stones article, Inside California's Cannabis Crisis. And her name is Mary Jane. Yes. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, there, Mary Jane Gibson. There's nothing ironic there, Lindsay? Nope. <laughs> Just making sure we had a... <laughs> We, if you want to send us uh, guest suggestions, topic suggestions, whatever you want, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. We had a guest suggestion sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com by longtime listener Evar. Evar writes, Hi, Chuck. Thank you for your hard, hellish work and some mind blowing outer views. 
Since listening to your interview back in January with Jeff Nesbitt on carbon dominance, I've tried to resist sending you a guest suggestion again for Andrew Coburn based on his January Harper's article, Spent Fuel, the Risky Resurgence of Nuclear Power. In your interview with Jeff Nesbitt, he made many excellent points, but the topic of nuclear power barely came up. I, but it did come up in our conversation about the uh, Ohio corruption when it comes to coal and nuclear power. So if people want to go back to that interview, they could hear that as well. I was able to resist my temptation until I listened to your closing comments on the Tuesday, February 1st show discussing Ohio's energy corruption. There you go. Evar's on top of it. Coburn touches on the scandal as well as ComEd with the Illinois bailout of ComEd being heralded in the Tribune and other reporting as green Jesus in the background barely reported the corruption scandals I'm not sure how to unpack the Illinois energy bill since I have not seen anything that brings the that stands together perhaps Coburn could put these pieces together even more in an interview perhaps not it really does stun me that this Illinois energy bill and the corruption that took down uh, Speaker of the House Madigan it just is not getting very much focus here in local poly- in local media. Evar continues, regardless, Coburn does an excellent job of tearing about, tearing about the mainstream move to green nukes, seen even in Green New Deal advocates like AOC, and brings up many important lines to query him on. Justic's suggestion, stay beautiful, Evar. P.S. Regarding your brain switch while giving a presentation in Spanish that suddenly became French for an entire sentence and switched back, this is the sort of thing that has happened to me several times. I learned French first and reached a high level of fluency as an undergraduate French major with extensive study abroad, but switched to Spanish mostly, living in Spain and completing an MA in Latin American literature. My best example was in Mexico City visiting a friend right before COVID. We went to see a French movie at the Cinoteca. Coming out of the film, I experienced brain fry, and every time I opened my mouth to speak, French came out instead of Spanish. Only after five minutes was I able to reset and start up in Spanish. Since the two languages are so related as common brother romance languages, perhaps they overlap in their brain realization. Well, thanks, Imar, for making me not feel alone in that brain cramp that I was having. And I cannot believe I missed your original Andrew Coburn suggestion earlier back in January, because Andrew is a longtime supporter of the show, as is his brother Patrick and their late great brother Alex Ivar. I'll look into it, and even though the article is a couple of months old, Andrew is always a great guest and is really good on energy. Thanks to our guest today, public sector immigration lawyer Daniel Mello, whose recent writing at Black Agenda Report includes the capitalist imperative driving cruel and bipartisan U.S. immigration policies, as well as Democrats and trading people for political power migration policies. Check out Daniel's book, Borderlines, The Edges of U.S. Capitalism, Immigration and Democracy, which was published by Zero Books back in August of 2021. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan J. Mello. Again, that's M-E-L-O. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing today's show. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for his cameo role this morning. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. 
Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>